Since September 11, 2001, our struggle with jihadism has been largely centered in the Middle East. But while large and looming threats remain ever-present in that region, jihadist forces have been rising on the continent of Africa, south of the Sahara. Al-Qaeda and ISIS have spawned such groups as Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab that are spreading their influence across the Sahel, in the Horn of Africa, and beyond. Yet we hear little to nothing about these groups and their efforts and their attacks in the media, even as a recent study shows that African jihadists are increasingly attacking Western targets. Today I'm joined by FDD senior fellow David Gardenstein-Ross to discuss his most recent study analyzing the evolving threat posed by these African jihadists, what can be done to stop or at least slow their rise. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. I've been interested in Africa for a fairly long time. In the 1980s, um, I was posted there as the New York Times correspondent and West Africa bureau chief. I covered a civil war in Chad. I covered an election and a subsequent coup in Nigeria. I covered a terrible famine in Ethiopia and the Sudan. One thing I didn't cover in those days was Islamism or jihadism. In those days, there were some tensions between Muslims and Christians, but they were, I would say, overridden by tribal or ethnic animosities and other uh, issues. But at a certain point, radicalization began in Africa. Uh, David Gardenstein-Ross, when did that really begin, that process? It, it's a great question. Uh, you can see some manifestations of it in certain countries ranging from the rise of militant Islamist groups in uh, Egypt. And you can date those from the 1970s onward in terms of the um, importance of that movement. Obviously, the assassination of Sadat was um, a key moment for those groups. You have in the 1990s um, the Islamist takeover in Sudan, the rise of Turabi um, and others. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's actually a missing causal factor, uh, which hasn't been studied satisfactorily, but at the very least, when you look at it, you can see that it's there. Um, in places like Somalia, you had two things occur. One of them is the obvious. The Somali government collapsed. Um, you know, prior to the collapse of the, of, of the government, um, you had um, – What year was that? It was in at the, at the very end of the Cold War. It was around 1990, 91. And uh, you know, a few things happened. I mean they lost their Soviet sponsorship. Uh, so I guess it was 91, 92. Um, Black Hawk Down happened almost immediately thereafter. You know, they lost their Soviet sponsorship and right away a bunch of uh, human rights groups – argued that aid to Somalia had to stop for human rights reasons. Uh, to me, we don't know how much that contributed um, to the collapse of the Siad Barre regime. But to me, that's one of those huge mistakes where um, you make the perfect, uh, well, 
it's not really making the perfect the enemy of the good, but you're making the the you're making um, uh, the perfect the ideal. And by cutting off aid, that helped to usher in this governmental collapse and the the anarchy that followed. But another factor that was there, and you can see it in uh, the development of Islam and some other countries in the Horn, is Wahhabi proselytization and uh, people being educated in places like Saudi Arabia. And Wahhabism and being the, this is really the state religion of Saudi Arabia, and it was exported with oil money over a long period of time. Really, following the 1979 revolution in Iran, the Saudis began spending huge amounts of money proselytizing Wahhabism. Yeah, and it, and it was there before as well, but it did, it, it increased at, at the time, especially because there was just much more oil money, um, uh, especially after uh, you know, the 73 war and um, the oil embargo. Um, and those kinds of events helped to make these countries that previously you know, weren't extraordinarily rich be flush with cash. There's one other distinction I want to make. When I said I would covered Africa, we in Africa, uh, doing reporting, we distinguish between what we called Africa south of the Sahara yeah. and also Africa north of south, which meant north of South Africa. So we didn't look at what was going on in Egypt. That would be a separate bureau. That, would be a, that, was, a, that was part of the Middle East. Uh, Somalia, being the Horn of Africa, was sort of somewhat different from either because the Horn of Africa, as you think about it, Somalia and Ethiopia, in some ways part of Africa, in some ways they really are part of the Middle East too. A lot of their historical intercourse, interchange, was across the Red Sea to the Middle East rather than down into sub-Saharan Africa. So when I say that Muslim-Christian relations in a place like Nigeria or Niger or the Ivory Coast were relatively good, I'm saying that there wasn't that kind of radicalization seeping from the Middle East, from North Africa, through the Sahara down into sub-Saharan Africa. I think that came rather later. Yes, it, it did. Um, and it also, fortunately, there's uh, a lot of countries it hasn't uh, penetrated to to the same degree. Uh, you, even, uh, for example, um, in uh, a country like Nigeria, where you have a terrible problem with jihadism, um, you don't have um, an epidemic level of intercommunal violence. Like, you have it. Um, especially, uh, and as you know, in, in Nigeria, you have a northern belt, a middle belt, and a southern belt. The southern belt is primarily Christian, northern belt is primarily Muslim, and then the middle belt um, is, is mixed. And you've had um, flare-ups in intercommunal violence, but not to the degree that you get in some other areas. Um, it's not the kind of epidemic proportion uh, that one might fear. And um, so even where there's – like I was recently in, in Nigeria in uh, 2015 um, doing work um, for uh, the European Union on um, counter-radicalization. Uh, basically, they were interested in getting civil society activists together to think about how Boko Haram and other jihadist groups used social media. And there were – it was very mixed. About half of the participants were Christian. About half were Muslim. Um, and you know, within the country writ large, it still hasn't had kind of a radicalization throughout society, though you obviously in the north have a huge problem uh, with, with Boko Haram, which especially in Borno State has been able to really destabilize and change society. One of the reasons uh, I've been thinking about this is that you have come out with a report that we'll discuss just uh, just in recent days 
on what's going on in Africa and the threat to Western interests in Africa and really the, 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 the growth in various forms of, of jihadism. But the other thing that struck me, and I wrote a column about it for the Washington Times, was uh, suddenly there was throughout the U.S. great interest in Africa. Wonderful, except that it's mostly interest in Wakanda, Wakanda being the fictional kingdom in Black Panther, which is uh, a, an action movie that's been widely uh, praised, enthused, gushed over by critics, not just because it's fun to watch. I assume it is. I haven't seen it yet. But with this kind of idea that, oh, this is Africa as it could be, Africa as it might have been had it not been for colonialism and imperialism. And of course, that's A, I think not true. And B, it so ignores the reality of what's going on in Africa, which you talk about and some others have. And just in recent days, we've had Boko Haram uh, in northeastern Nigeria, uh, raiding a school and taking uh, another hundred children captive, enslaving them. And we're talking about slavery. We're talking about modern-day slavery, probably marrying them, marrying in quotes, to the jihadists of Boko Haram. It got very little attention, and even less attention was given to Fulani Muslim raids of Tiv Christian villages, also in, in parts of the northeast, ransacking them, destroying churches, and killing people almost no media attention whatsoever. Uh, that's, not, that's not a great situation, it seems to me. And my criticism is mainly aimed at, at the media for not covering this with very few exceptions. Right. And I think uh, one thing I um, thought resonated from, from the column um, in your criticism of this disjunction between the attention given to Wakanda and the lack of attention to schoolgirls being kidnapped again, um, I, I think a lot of it really came down to the kind of self-righteous um, tonal praise of Black Panther, where, um, you know, look, we're, we're in an age of undeserved self-righteousness. And so I, th I think that is there in the coverage. Um, and virtue it, signaling, I guess, is the other phrase I would use. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, it, it's surprising, um, the actually, the lack of attention um, to another set of schoolgirls being kidnapped. I think that, that part of it is it seems to be that when the media has seen – when, when – our collective attention has been drawn to something already. Like the second time, it doesn't have the same impact. But it's obviously an awful thing to happen. And obviously, we should care just about it, uh, as much about the world as it is, as kind of the world as it's fictionally portrayed. Or, or else, you know, on the other hand, just recognize um, kind of the, the limits of uh, signaling our virtue based on a, a work of fiction. Absolutely. And, and uh, part of the fear is that a group like Boko Haram, uh, seizing schools, taking girls as slaves, uh, that that becomes accepted as sort of the new normal that we just say, well, that's what happens in parts of Africa and Nigeria. We know that happens from time to time. People will have to kind of get used to it or the government will have to try to figure out a way to solve the problem. But they haven't and, and they may not. One of the problems insofar as, as we're concerned at the U.S. or, or Western countries um, is that it's hard, though, to, to formulate what the strategy should be uh, of intervention to stop something like that from becoming a new normal. Um, there are things that can be done. Uh, like one of the things which which I've focused on in policy prescriptions has really been on, um, you know, it seems wonky, but monitoring and evaluation of our security assistance uh, missions to, to Africa, where, you know, we're spending a lot of money uh, to try to make these militaries more capable. In some cases, like in Nigeria, you have a lot of corruption 
within the military. But one of those key questions is, is this money being spent making things better? Um, that's one thing that can be done. But our direct ability to um, really cut Boko Haram down to size more than it is and make those gains sustainable, because we know how hard it is to sustain those gains, is more limited than I would like. It's also striking how moving away from Africa and into Europe, how in Europe, in only a few years, we've had a, a situation with terrorism that has become the new normal, where people seem resigned to the idea that you know uh, teenage girls are going to get blown up in a concert, you know, once every few years, and that's just kind of the cost of doing business. That really would have been, you know, unthinkable in even 2010. In terms of of our assistance last year, this got some attention. Uh, American special forces were killed in neighboring Niger, which is a country to, to the to the west of uh, of Nigeria. I'm not quite sure how the U.S. government is evaluating what happened and whether that was worth the sacrifice, whether that's part of the war that has to be fought in Africa and the help we have to give, or whether that's going to say, we got to get out of here because we don't want to lose any more soldiers in yeah. Africa. Yeah, it's not clear what they're going to say. It's not clear to me either what the right answer is there. It's it's not clear if it was in service of U.S. interests mm. or if instead it was helping our partner nation. Right? A lot of security assistance isn't, isn't actually looking like that. Most security assistance, the vast majority, um, does not involve special operations forces. It doesn't involve boots on the ground. Um, instead, it tends to be more you know, training that you run people through, um, equipment that you provide, intelligence uh, resources, uh, things like that, uh, and to me, one of the one of the key problems, and you know, I've um, intersected with others, like with with NATO. We, I did a project for them, um, a couple of projects for them within the past couple of years, looking at monitoring and evaluation. And the problem is, we often have different metrics to evaluate success. Um, a lot of programs build their own metrics in. And at the very least for NATO, I know a little bit less about the U.S. government's uh, way of monitoring. They don't even have a real good way of looking at the way that various NATO countries have structured their programs and how all of the programs that these countries do security assistance through fit together in a big picture. Boko Haram is one of the most brutal barbarian of the jihadist groups in Africa. I think you'd agree. It's yeah. just it sort of started in Nigeria. It's also in Niger. It's gotten into Cameroon, Chad, I believe, a little bit, Burkina Faso. Do you have a sense of how many fighters they have uh, and, and, and perhaps more importantly, why it's so difficult to root out these fighters and, 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 and defeat them fairly definitively? And, and keep them from coming back over and over again. So I don't have a good sense of how many fighters there are in part because if you look at um, official estimates of number of fighters that groups have, they tend to be completely off. Um, and, and I wrote a piece about this a few years ago in War on the Rocks. This is early on when U.S. government estimates on number of ISIS fighters were you know, 9,000, 18,000, and there was one around 30,000. And the basic point I made uh, was that if you look at the amount of territory that they held um, and the governance they're imposing and their force structure, there's no way it was as, as small as even 30,000. It had to be higher. And we can very definitively see a couple of years later that it absolutely was higher because of the U.S. attrition figures. The U.S. Uh, attrition figures for ISIS fighters in Iraq and Syria was, um, has been over 60,000. And you know, at, at this point, obviously, they've collapsed. 
but once that you started to hit 50,000, 45,000, um, it was, you know, they would have had to replace their entire force structure if it were as small as initial estimates, you know, two, maybe three times. And even with their collapse, if they'd had to replace it that many times, 100% of their force structure, they wouldn't have been fighting as well as they did for as long as they did. So with Boko Haram, oftentimes the estimates are around the, the 1,000 range, um, you know, give or take. Um, for me, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And I think one of the reasons why our, our numbers tend to be off is the force structure is sometimes amorphous, where they, for example, might have pools of people that they can draw from who aren't activated right away. Um, Boko Haram has been cut down to size before. Uh, you, know, they, they, you had a major Nigerian offensive against them in 2009. And then they found, um, in the wake of the Nigerian offensive, they found that both al-Qaeda, the Islamic Maghreb, and also Shabab were able to Shabab help them. Shabab being from Somalia, just to yeah, that's there. correct. Somalia, uh, they were able to help them to to reconstitute and to uh, rebuild their forces. Um, this time around, uh, they've hopped over the border, as we can see, um, into the Lake Chad region. Um, you have a four-country offensive against them. They're, they have been significantly reduced compared to their height. You know, at their height back in early 2015, Boko Haram uh, controlled the majority of Borno State. And they, they'd conquered the majority of it. They were bearing down in the capital of Maiduguri. Mm -hmm. And that's when you had this offensive designed to push them back, which also came around the same time they ended up pledging their allegiance to ISIS. Since then, they've lost a lot of power. But as with an, a number of other jihadist groups, the concern is, number one, they can do very brutal things on the way down, mm. like capturing schoolgirls. Mm -hmm. But then number two, what's the, the hardest thing uh, and the area where – a number of different countries' militaries have failed again and again is put, driving that nail through the coffin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Mali, after al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb was pushed back once it controlled northern Mali, the French intervened in early 2013, um, there now is a powerful and rising insurgency. Mm -hmm. In Somalia, you had uh, a, a, an intervention against the Islamic Courts Union originally um, by Ethiopia, and then you had the African Union's mission, AMISOM, um, result in Shabab getting pushed back from being a governing force in southern Somalia. Uh, but now it's coming back, carrying out more attacks, more sophisticated attacks, and sometimes extraordinarily brutal attacks. They had one attack that killed 500 people last year, which as far as I can tell um, is one of the deadliest attacks other than the 9-11 attacks that the world has ever seen. Hmm. With, again, very little media attention. Oh, yeah, very little. Yeah. Since Boko Haram has pledged its allegiance to the Islamic State, and since the Islamic State has been substantially defeated in Syria and Iraq, do we have any evidence that that's hurt Boko Haram, that they haven't been getting equipment, money, the support they need, or they've always lived off the land and they continue to live off the land and it doesn't really matter? Because What do we know? Uh, I, well, uh, the answer is we don't know, but I, th I think the answer is that it's hurt them. You know, my assumption, and I've written about this a few times, though, um, you know, there's there's some evidence that's lacking, which is you know always the case with violent non-state actors. These are clandestine organizations, so it can sometimes be hard to read the inner workings. Um, but I, I think that my assumption is, and um, if you look at the geography, it, it's I think borne out that they would have been better off not pledging to the Islamic State. Um, there's actually kind of this very interesting history, which is not very well known. Um, you know, ISIS, when it was trying to lure Boko Haram, it actually fabricated control of an entire city in Libya. 
uh, the city of Derna, mm-hmm. right? It never came to control Derna, um, but it, it drove convoys into Derna, which is a city where, where after Gaddafi's fall, the new government never reestablished a writ and where you had warring militias controlling the majority of the city. ISIS drove convoys in. They put a flag up on a government building, which was a great propaganda move, but meaningless, right? It's like going into a McDonald's and putting your flag on Mayor McCheese's office. Like Mayor McCheese is actually just a figurehead. He doesn't actually run McDonald's. And really? so, yeah, sorry. sorry to break it <laughs> to you, but the hamburglar is actually a burglar. So if you okay. see him, chop off his well, hand. Um, we learn but, a lot from these broadcasts. Yes. Yeah, so they, they drove in, they put up their flag on a government building and you know, Newsweek, CNN, uh, Associated Press, all these major outlets reported that ISIS captured the city. Mm. When you break down what was going on at the time, ISIS was wooing Boko Haram, and um, they got the media to report the PSYOP that they that they really wanted to project to Boko Haram. They got all these media outlets to report that Derna had been taken by ISIS. Now, we know for a fact that it didn't, and fortunately, you know, for the longest time I was saying that it hadn't happened. I even testified about uh, you know, before the Senate in, in May of 2015 and used this as an example of an ISIS PSYOP. And then the following month, um, ISIS, which was the known as the Islamic Youth Shura Council, got kicked out of Derna when they went to war with uh, another jihadist group in Derna, known as the Derna Mujahideen Shura Council. And they were kicked out of Derna in about two weeks without uh, their opponents drawing in any reinforcements, which is a good sign that they never controlled Derna. But so this was part of their campaign to show for ISIS to show Boko Haram that they were a powerful force in Africa and that joining ISIS wouldn't impose a cost. But geographically, if you look at where Boko is, um, ISIS's center of gravity in Africa was in Libya, in Sirte, which they in fact did capture. Uh, and so rather than being able to you know, go to uh, the Sahel region and to Mali where you had a powerful jihadist presence, which was al-Qaeda dominated, instead um, you know, their connection to uh, their mothership was in Sirte, which was much further away. And now after um, ISIS has lost Sirte, it creates much more pressure on Boko Haram. Um, thus, for a while, I've been saying that their relationship is in danger. And, you know, it wouldn't, won't necessarily inevitably end, but I think that there is danger in that relationship. Now, people should remember that the Islamic State is a splinter from al-Qaeda for various reasons. Uh, al-Qaeda, as far as I know, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, has actually been quietly growing its power in Africa and other places as well. Might al-Qaeda say to Boko Haram, don't you want to rejoin us? Might Boko Haram go to al-Qaeda and say, you know what, we made a mistake. We'd rather be part of al-Qaeda. That's the movement of the future. I think that's absolutely a possibility. I expect if it happens, um, they won't be as upfront that that's happened. Because in Africa, if you look at how al-Qaeda has grown, um, it's always grown under off-brands. Um, including and even in Syria, when they first uh, set up Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria, which of course became a very well-known al-Qaeda branch, um, they disguised the relationship at first. Now, when you when you hop down to Africa, the brand they've tended to use has been Ansar al-Sharia, Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, Ansar al-Sharia in Libya. Um, you had uh, another group in Tunisia um, called Katibat Uqba ibn Nafi which um, eventually acknowledged that it was a battalion of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Boko um, was a part of the al-Qaeda orbit. It was never a declared affiliate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, some scholars put too much emphasis on the fact that it wasn't declared because just because an affiliate is not declared doesn't mean it's not an affiliate. We can see this very clearly actually in Osama bin Laden's own correspondence with Shabab, you know, the Somali group that we had talked about. Uh, they wanted their affiliation with al-Qaeda to be made official when bin Laden was alive and he told them not to do it. He said, you can tell people locally that you're a part of al-Qaeda. But um, you don't want to announce it because that will draw the enemy's resources to you. He said, of course, when you say it locally, eventually people will realize this is the case. But it's the announcement that really gives them the pretext they're looking for. So he was looking at it through a lens of covert affiliation being better. And we can see how that that, 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 that did play out in the post-Arab Spring environment in Libya, uh, in Tunisia. Even uh, we could see some of the same things being done Uh, in Egypt as well. So I'd expect that if Boko rejoined, it wouldn't be that they're joining al-Qaeda. It would be that um, they are leaving ISIS. And I think they would leave it at that. But for for al-Qaeda, in terms of the al-Qaeda-ISIS competition, if that were to happen, it would be a powerful sign because Boko being the most prominent group to join ISIS, if they then backed out, um, that would kind of be the nail in the coffin, at least for now, uh, for ISIS's ambitions in really gobbling up the world of jihadism and bringing them to their pole. When you look at the leadership of al-Qaeda or leadership of the Islamic State, you have to acknowledge, I think, that they're actually fairly sophisticated, maybe very sophisticated. They know their theology. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of, uh, of the Islamic State uh, has a doctorate, essentially, from Baghdad University, I think it is, in theology. Uh, I'm an Azawahiri uh, Osama bin Laden, they knew a lot. When you look at the leadership of Boko Haram or the leadership of al-Shabaab in Somalia, are they sophisticated theologically, ideologically, or are they kind of jumping on a bandwagon? Uh, for Boko Haram, I would definitely say no. Um, not sophisticated. Not sophisticated. Yeah. Um, for uh, for Shabaab, uh, I don't have as good a read of the current leadership. Um, if you look at the the early leadership, um, and like Hassan Dahir Awais, who um, he was a member of Shabab, but moreover, uh, he was a mentor to Adnahashi Airo, who was the founder of Shabab. Um, he's he's a sophisticated individual in terms of, of his understanding of theology. Um, you've had a, a lot of attrition within Shabab at top levels. Um, so I personally don't have as good a read as I used to on to what extent uh, they're sophisticated. For ISIS, uh, I think they have much more of a, ta- a they have much more of a tactical sophistication than uh, certainly a long term strategic sophistication. Where a lot of their early moves, uh, like opening up front after front after front, um, were easily foreseeable as as being bad strategic moves. I mean, I, I wrote about that at the time, and a few years later, it became clear. For some reason, some people, um, some analysts, I think, saw. ISIS the way they saw themselves, that a group that can you know, win and keep winning, then win again, kind of like the way Charlie Sheen saw himself back in 2011. But it didn't work out well for Charlie Sheen, and it's worked out even worse for ISIS. What people, the upheaval in the, in the Middle East, it was called the Arab Spring. There were a lot of people who were very optimistic about it. That's why it was called the Arab Spring. Um, I was less so. Um, you've written that the Arab Spring actually ended up by promoting this kind of radicalization 
in Africa, including Africa, not least south of the Sahara, pushing down this radicalization, just the opposite of what people kind of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, that, that's um, something I've been saying for a while. And so one of our findings was kind of the dramatic increase in attacks uh, post-Arab Spring, that if you look at the past decade, um, the rate of terrorism has basically tripled post-Arab Spring in terms of terrorist attacks against what we define as Western targets. But well, then, by the way, I, should, I was going to ask you about this. this the, you've just done the, this report, which particularly looks at Western targets, which right. particularly looks at what we see happening. Um, no, pre- precisely. And uh, so in the study, we found that, that the rate of attacks uh, had tripled. Um, you know, the mechanisms, and, and these were mechanisms, you were a skeptic of that this would destroy jihadism in 2011. I was very skeptical of it. Um, and you know, the mechanisms which I wrote about then have, have kind of borne out. Um, you know, the things I, I, I flagged at the time were prison releases, which were very significant in Tunisia uh, and in Egypt for rebuilding the jihadist movement. Um, secondly, Dawa opportunities, which were significant for Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, which was uh, one of the early names that al-Qaeda uh, used in, in Tunisia, uh, but didn't become as relevant in some other places in part because of a third factor eclipsed them, which is the prospect for instability spreading. So when uh, Qaddafi's regime fell, when that intervention um, happened and the Qaddafi government fell, it had a destabilizing effect in Libya and also in uh, Mali in particular. Uh, you know, uh, Qaddafi had a large number of Tuareg mercenaries who were very heavily armed. And when his government fell, um, they pillaged arms caches and returned to northern Mali. Now, the Tuaregs in northern Mali, traditionally speaking, uh, are not jihadists. Uh, there's, not a, a, there's not a large... Um, they don't have an overwhelming jihadist constituency, although there are some Tuareg jihadists. But jihadists were able to exploit that situation and move into northern Mali. So that had this ripple effect where the instability um, provided um, something that that jihadists could capitalize on. Uh, to me, one of the reasons – and I've, I've revisited those Arab Spring debates a lot because of how strong the consensus was. Um, and, you know – it, one might criticize me for re- revisiting it too much, but I think it's one thing that's important to me when we look strategically at the war on terrorism is obviously this is a, hard, a, a war that's very hard to win. It often seems like we're going backwards. But to me, if we're not understanding kind of the basic strategic landscape and what's happening and how these groups are interacting, it's going to be far harder to fashion good policy. And that's an example of where within the realm of anal- of prominent analysts, you had virtually unanimous uh, analysis that completely misread these epochally important events. And I haven't seen the sort of revisiting of assumptions that I'd really like to see and the asking, why did we get it wrong? To me, as an analyst, you should understand when you've gotten something wrong and you should un- you should right away unpack what is it that caused me to make that mistake. Um, but in line with kind of our our jabs at virtue signaling, I think you had some of that in the Arab Spring, mm. where to be to, to I experienced this, where other analysts seemed to feel that to hold that jihadists would would fall meant that you were validating the protests, and if you thought jihadists might benefit, you were against dictators falling. But it's not like that as all at all. As an analyst, when you're trying to understand the world, all you want from an analyst is for them to say that this this event. You know, the you know Qaddafi falling will have this impact on jihadism. They're not their analysis of the world is not meant as a validation or an invalidation of a dictator falling. 
Instead, you just need to know what the second order consequence mm-hmm. is going to be, and policymakers and others can do what they think is right. Well, the, uh, a striking point in, in, in your report for policymakers is that you find that the jihadis are quite actively learning and innovating, that they're paying close attention to the tactics being and strategies being used against them, and they're getting better at what they do. Absolutely. Uh, and we can see how those tactics are changing. Uh, one of the big innovators has been Shabab, in part because they've just had so many opportunities to innovate. The, the war in Somalia is really heating up, and their tempo of attacks is very high. Um, but we can see from tar- when we broke it down by target, you can actually see their innovation across target types, where uh, in Somalia, when they were attacking hotels and, and other targets that are uh, somewhat popular with Westerners, those hotels are very fortified. Um, I mean, going back to, to um, Africa these days, a, a lot of the hotels you'll go to in places like Nigeria, they, they look a lot like fortresses these days, um, Somalia even more so. And what they moved from was single mode attacks with like gunmen or else a bomb to, to um, multi-tactic, multi-phased attacks, generally involving a vehicle-borne IED uh, that, that blows up the guard station and allows an entry point. Often the guards arriving would, or, or not the guards arriving, the attackers arriving would be dressed as guards, mm-hmm. right? There'd be that element they of confusion. They uniforms, they manage to do that. Right. Yep. They looked like security forces and then they'd come in not only commandeer the hotel, but also actually use the hotel's defenses as a means of then conducting their siege and prolonging the siege. Likewise, in aviation, we've seen um, innovations in their attacks on aviation, including um, getting a bomb on board a plane uh, in a recent Dalo Airlines flight, uh, as well as using um, a uh, printer, uh, you know, bombs hidden in printers, uh, similar to uh, the printer cartridges similar to the attack type that we saw Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula use in 2010. So we can see them learning. And to me, uh, this concept of jihadist learning is very important. There have been a few studies looking at it, but I think it really remains understudied for people who uh, try to understand terrorist groups. Now, it's, it's unfair to ask an analyst to predict. On the other hand, there are probabilities and expectations. What we've been seeing, as we described starting off, is jihadism and Islamism creeping its way south? Do you expect that, that will continue in Africa or not? Because what part of that is you have the Muslim North, and I'm not talking about North Africa, I'm talking about south of the Sahel, south of the Sahara, but that's still heavily Islamic. The further south you go, the, for the most part, the less Islamic it is. Will, will this kind of wave of Islamism stop at a certain point, or do you see it just continuing because the governmental, institutional, military, police structures are insufficient to prevent its its advance. No, I don't think it'll continue indefinitely. Um, I think that we'll see a continued migration south. But if you look at, but the migration south is going to be more of an attack migration. Like we can see from the Sahel how there's been a move southward in terms of attacks, um, which seem to be kind of edging into northern Burkina Faso, for example. Uh, and we see a few attacks in places where um, previously you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't see them, like in Ivory Coast, uh, for example, which experienced its first te- major terrorist attack. It, you're not going to have kind of a wave of major jihadist groups. You're not going to have, for example, major jihadist groups um, coming into um, into countries where there's a predominantly Christian population. They just wouldn't have 
uh, any sort of demographics to support them. This is hard to know too, but I'll ask, among the Muslim population of, uh, of Africa, is the example of al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and these other groups, is that inspiring them and radicalizing them? Or are they, in many cases, seeing that as something just terrible that they want to avoid? After all, a lot of the uh, people don't necessarily realize a lot of these girls that they're enslaving, these are Muslim girls. Oh, these are. are not Christian girls necessarily. Well, what we know is that the um, the vast majority of, of African Muslims see this as, as absolutely abhorrent. There's there's zero question about that. I mean the the one exception, the the one area where I think there's much more of a question mark is Somalia, but that's because that's been, as I said, they used to have the the most moderate practice of Islam, but it's a country that that has been at war, um, literally now for 27 years, and that like when when a country is at war for several generations. That just has a warping impact on everything because leave aside radicalism versus moderation. When you have a place where violence becomes the norm, like it, it's hard to think of of a normal like we do. Like for us, you know, we don't experience violence in our daily lives except when I miss a deadline for Cliff. Um, <laughs> whereas um, you know, for Somalia, it's just, it's a, it's a society where. where Ongoing war breeds radicalization. But for the radicalization question, though, really, when we look at radicalization, the question is what's happening at the fringes, what's happening at the margins. Mm -hmm. So, like Tunisia, when I did, when I've done field research there, mm -hmm. uh, I did field research uh, on Ansar al Sharia before it was banned, and what I found is it was a very marginal movement, but it was also a rapidly growing movement. So you both had the majority of Tunisians rejecting radicalism while at the same time, radicalism was growing. And there was also this very polarizing debate between Islamists and secularists within the society. So that makes the radicalization picture a much more complex one because for radicalization to succeed, you, these groups don't actually require societal radicalization. What they require is a critical mass at the fringes. And that can sometimes be difficult to read. Well, the 19th century was difficult for Africa. The 20th century was difficult for Africa. I think the 21st century is shaping up to be difficult for Africa. And I think it's important that analysts and the news media and even the entertainment media realize that, recognize that, and talk about that, see that through clear eyes. And uh, I hope we've managed to bring a little bit more clarity to this discussion uh, today. Um, but hope to have you back again to talk about developments in Africa. Congratulations on your report. And thanks so much for being with us today on Foreign Policy. Thank you, Cliff. It was a real pleasure to join you. Thank you for listening in for this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts, even your criticisms. We hope you'll join us again in the future. Until then, I'm Cliff May. And you've been listening to Foreign Policy.